0: Welcome to Super Connected. With me, Tim Arnold, and my special guests. We invite you to join us in an intimate and honest exploration into the theme of connection. What it means to be connected to each other, what it means to be connected to ourselves, and what it means to connect in an ever-changing world. David is the co-owner of Tunbridge Wells Forum, a venue he founded over 25 years ago. Since then, Mark has split his time between various music activities, running music charity, Rhythmics, managing artists, running a small record company, working in music placement, and in 2014, creating Music Venue Trust, the charity which works to protect, secure, and improve the UK's vital grassroots music venues. Bev Wittrick is a cultural professional who has worked in arts development and management for over 25 years. She met Mark when she was the Arts Development Officer for Tunbridge Wells Borough Council, and they fell in love at a succession of gigs. They've been married for over 20 years and have 19-year-old twins. Bev has run Music Venue Trust since its inception. Mark is the CEO, great with ideas. Bev turns those ideas into deliverable projects. I have had the great pleasure of working with them both in the past and it is with the same pleasure that I welcome them now to the show. Hello, Mark and Bev. How are you and where are you?
1: Hello, Tim. We are in our home, which is just south of Barcelona, um, mm-hmm. which is somewhere we've lived for 15 years.
2: We should say we're actually in the garage, Tim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to do this and talk um, uh, about, well, connection and, of course, your brilliant work um, with Music Venue Trust. I, I want to talk, first of all, uh, just about how, you know, COVID-19, coronavirus, lockdown, how that's affecting you both um, at the moment in Spain.
1: Um, Well, there's the personal and there's the professional, of course. Personally, well, in one way, we're really lucky, which is that we're quite used to working from our home um, and we do rent a nice home so we've got quite a lot of space the big challenge for us mm-hmm. was to get our kids back here before everything got super scary and we were incredibly lucky um, one of our daughters studies at the University of Amsterdam and the other daughter was actually working in London she's trying to break into the music industry and the sort of tech side of things and she was volunteering and on the same night we managed to get two flights for them so we managed to get them home home just after technically lockdown had begun here but nobody caught us so that was all right and so yes with the exception of being able to go out and buy food on occasion which Mark has very bravely done and found quite terrifying and um, dog walking which we're very grateful to have a dog and be allowed to go out and take exercise in that way because it's the only way you can here. um, Yes. Things are going pretty well for us really.
2: Yeah, and, I tell you uh, um I'd say professionally um we're probably the busiest we've ever been yes. if I'm honest. We we're, <laughs> we're facing a huge crisis in the whole of the sector that we work on behalf of and um so uh, our computer screens are hammering all day long with with messages coming in and of course like everybody else we're using that, those Zoom windows that all looks like we're in the opening sequence of the Brady Bunch. Yes. Um <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it's it's a busy time for us. We're we're actually working probably harder than we have done at any point in the last six years, frankly.
1: But we're also incredibly lucky that we've got a really good solid team. I mean, interestingly, we're now spread over three different countries because um, Mena's actually gone back to her family in the Netherlands. Clara and Sarah are still in London. But fortunately... We're used to the sort of twice-a-day online meetings, and other than that, email and messages do it quite well.
0: Yeah, and this is what happens, isn't it? When your life is really driven by a passion, uh, whatever passion that is, whether it's you know an artistic pursuit or a social pursuit or like yourselves, it's a charity – um, it, it, you know, when, when everything shuts down, you you don't really need to stop. Do you? <laughs> you just have no. you have more time to express more passion. I hope you're both getting a break now and again, though, because the incredibly important. Pardon,
2: I'm not really sure what day of the week it is, but other than that, we we get <laughs> we, had a, we had a day off that we called Sunday.
1: Well, no, I keep trying to point out that you know it is Saturday or Sunday, but yeah, Mark doesn't seem very good at that. i I think that's where having a team is an advantage because i do i do (laughs) think that that clara meriner and sarah do do like to have a break every so often but yeah mark would probably work 24 7 if he could
0: now for people coming to music venue trust for the first time hopefully that people have heard and know about the work that you do um uh, but you know I, I can talk about it because I know, but you we've got you here, so would it be okay, Mark and Bev, if you could just um, give an outline of what Music Venue Trust is, what what why are music venues um, deserving of having a charity set up for them to protect them and, and, and keep them uh, being, you know, run properly?
2: um well this all started a long time ago for me I I have a really big connection and passion with live music and um that's expressed as you said in the opening you know I founded one of these venues but around about 10 years ago now a lot of us that run these venues started noticing that they were disappearing from the landscape and particularly we started seeing them disappearing from rural communities from some of our larger or smaller towns and the impact that that was having on communities and on musicians and, and crew and artistic people and cultural communities was was really quite devastating. And it's been a long tradition in this sector that, you know, musicians would, would find somewhere to set up a venue and that venue might last a little while and then it would close and another one would open. But what we started seeing is that, in fact, whole towns and cities started losing so many of their music venues, they literally weren't being replaced. Yeah. And so we started thinking about, literally 10 years ago, we started thinking about what could be done about that. And it took us maybe three years of thinking about that, waiting and hoping that somebody else would do something about it and imagining they would before we realised that actually the only people were going to do anything about it was ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that resulted in the foundation of the charity. And then since then, the charity has been really fighting the corner for music venues in every aspect in which yeah. they're under threat and in which they don't don't really work. So that would be at government level... Um, at local authority level within the music industry itself trying to get more respect from the the bigger players in the music industry and we've had a huge amount of successes Um, we've changed the law in some respects Uh, we've seen uh, money public money finally going in to support some of the some of the work they do we've seen them come together as one big network a big society of venues and that's I mean, well, I was actually remarking to somebody only the other day, actually, it's only four months ago that I stood up in Islington Town Hall and said we'd reached a real turning point here and that we would finally finish a year, for probably the first time in 15 years, we would finish a year with more venue, music venues open than yeah. clo- they were, were open the year before. And, of course, four months later, this is where we are. We have another crisis now.
0: Mm. Now, my collection to you um, comes in, in us both arriving at similar ideas um, and then and then meeting each, each other because of those ideas. Um, and just for those listening who, who don't know, it, it was when I'd started that, the Save Soho campaign, I remember thinking, as being a musician in the middle of a place like Soho, that it wasn't just about music and it wasn't just about uh, artists, but it was just about having places where people who felt differently could commune together and, and have ideas together, and that it was its own ecosystem and, and as and has often been described as this kind of great incubator for talent and culture. And then I remember saying something or other uh, uh, on in a newspaper or whatever, and then I got a phone call from you saying, you're saying everything I've been saying for the last... <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> and I remember thinking how wonderful it was because um that there, there was it, it was that it wasn't just I felt quite isolated as an artist thinking that and then it was like oh no the, the people that are behind the venues think this as well and it's true isn't it it's about it's not just about you know Uh, the arts, which we all know is so underfunded and needs protecting and needs support. It's just society, isn't it, Mark?
1: I'm actually going to jump in and answer that because it's one of my really key roles of being the person that sort of runs the charity and keeps it going and, and comes from my yeah. background as a cultural professional. We talk so much about the social, cultural and economic value of all these venues. You know, they're yeah. not just places where Which is where important because
0: otherwise it does sound like it's just loads of musicians and art, artists kind of or, you know, performers kind of going, what about us? And it's not what about us. There is no what about us. It's It's everybody isn't it?
1: It is absolutely they're really core parts of a local community and they're also the places that catalyse a lot of people who maybe feel a little bit apart from the mainstream um, we've worked for quite a long time with Steve Lamack and he's given some really inspirational speeches at particularly at our Venues Day events which are our yeah. national networking events and he very much credits the fact that he is a broadcaster with discovering the square in Harlow in his teens and he basically says if he hadn't found that venue and met people there connected with them he wouldn't have any sort of creative career at all because he wouldn't have felt validated in his passions and his interest and really finding the connection with the people in that venue is what Mm. led him to want to pursue that career and that venue is is very sort of indicative of, of the work that we try and do from the point of view that Man. that's one of the venues that's sadly been lost since we started. And yeah. worst thing of all is it's just builded up, boarded up. It's never been demolished. It's never been converted into whatever it was that someone claimed they were going to turn it into. I think it was housing. It's just sat there empty. And so it's yeah. a lost venue for no reason. And it's, it's kind of emblematic of the lack of the value of these places for for all those different facets, not just places where loud music might take place.
0: Um, how does it feel, you know, um, being forced into screens now when when your your passions are all about trying to enable and facilitate um, people all over the country getting together in person?
2: I think it's. I think everybody's probably just starting to feel how weird it is, and and also starting to get that real sense of loss that they're not going to the gig this weekend, and mm. and they were looking forward to it, or that you know their festivals now being cancelled and won't be happening this year, or you know might be happening later this year, and and I mm. think initially it was probably, <laughs> initially it was probably quite, you know, it was something different. Lots of artists went online. Lots of people are making connections online. But then there is something missing, isn't there? I I feel there is, it's a different type of connection, but it's not, it doesn't do the same, it doesn't have the same kind of visceral emotive experience that you might get. Meanwhile, I I always like, yeah, yeah, I always like to say that I'm, I'm quite keen on standing in a room where I can, that's small enough that the sweat from the singer's brow will hit me in the face. (laughs) <laughs> but you know obviously given given the amount of contagion that would currently cause maybe that's not a good idea at the moment but but i think i think you know there's still that experience you get there's still that incredible there's that moment where everything is happening all together and the crowd is is really together and the band comes together yeah. and i don't you can't replace that with a with a digital replacement for it you can't it's something unique that happens that that one moment in that one place shared by those people that were there you know well it also Mm.
1: has well documented uh health benefits mental health benefits there's been some work by the world health organization proving that the collective coming together for cultural experiences is a beneficial thing and it's a really interesting one in a time where obviously the focus is on the health implication of this particular disease Mm. That it seems that that, you know, that that has surpassed everything else that we know about all the other bits of society at this point in time. Yeah. And that obviously is completely understandable. But as time goes on, I think the questions are going to be about how do we achieve achieve any sort of balance between the the bits of life that we need?
0: Yes, I think balance is a really important word Um, and and, and Mark, you you talked about it's a different feeling, you know, um, connecting with each other uh, via Zoom or something and and, and being in the same room together Uh, and they both have their merit, of course, but we're seeing uh, an extreme example now of what it means to be human with another human and what it means to be human with a computer between us just like we are now
2: yeah i think so and i think i i definitely started to feel this week that i was talking to more and more people who really maybe the positive that will come out of this is that people will really start to realize what physical connection and what so that social interaction—the value of it—maybe, maybe this is a bit of a wake-up call. Maybe, maybe the the positive that comes out of this horrible situation is that we all realize how important, you know, physical connection, social interaction, actually is to to feeling human and to
0: being connected. Do you know? I was really hoping you'd say that because um, that's what I hope as well. I I, I have many friends, performers, who you know have taken to doing facebook live events every couple of nights or whatever and some of them for good causes as well uh, but there's a there's a general uh, feeling i think of um i'm an entertainer uh, people want to be entertained i'm going to entertain you know and, and that's what what's yeah. great it, i mean it, to be honest it's like the string quartet at the end of the titanic you know it's the same thing <laughs> it's like this is what we do we shall do it and we yes. shall do it as well as we possibly can but I do, I have a feeling that it, it that's not going to last the six months that we, <laughs> we've been promised that uh, things will not get back to normal until, you know, uh, in the UK at least. I think it would, there's inevitably going to be a great reminder. Uh, I, I hope so, the way you put it so beautifully.
1: I, I think also there's an element of performers are going to perform, but they perform in a different way when they're distanced. And um, for me... I actually feel incredibly fortunate that one of the last things that we got to do before we entered lockdown was being International Women's Day. Actually, Grace, Alex and myself, we were all in London and we went on the the march in the afternoon. And then on the evening of the 8th of March... Grace and Alex are your
0: daughters, they twins. Grace and
1: Alex are our daughters, yes. Um, On the evening of the 8th of March, um, the three of us went to see Halsey performing at the O2 because you should take your daughters to see a feisty young woman on International Women's Day doing what she does well. Mm. And um, it was so very obvious from what was quite an inspiring performance. It's an artist, obviously, that's one that my daughters chose, although I really enjoyed it. But she was one of, she's one of those artists that you can see that she feeds off the energy of the audience. And right yeah. from the end of the first number... The concert just built and built and built because of that energy coming back to her. And I know she's done lots of stuff online, but I would imagine the experience for her would be completely different doing online things where, you know, you get to read a few comments and stuff, but you don't Mm. get that in your face energy that you get at a big show. And I think there are two very different types of performance that, that are to do with distant interaction or or, you know in the room interaction and I'm sure that for a lot of performers they will cope really well with doing one as a sort of meantime thing but they will be really keen to get back to the other.
0: Yeah I've spoken recently for this show actually to um, somebody who works in Neuroscience, um, whose um, own research project is based around the two different ways of uh, feeling emotion and the one emotion that we feel uh, when we're in this room with somebody and, we're, you know, there's eye contact and, and the other emotion is when we're FaceTiming or, or on a video call of some sort. Uh, and it's, it, it's sort of, it, it's an impression of the emotion but it's not and um, and it's very much uh, in keeping with what you're talking about with for performers I think there's a I think some music and some performance can work um, remotely um, and, and maybe works better but there's definitely a sense of uh, what you talk about which is the invisible part of a concert and that is the third spirit it is not the audience and it is not the band it is the spirit in between the two of them which you can't see but you can definitely feel can't you
1: yeah definitely
2: yeah and i think actually that that's brilliantly described and that third spirit is really takes us back to what we were talking about about why why does music venue trust exist and i would tell you honestly because i've as you probably guess i've been to a lot of these rooms <laughs> right way across the country and you know what i think you can feel that third spirit in these rooms sometimes even when there's nobody in there if you stand in stand in the bowels of the hundred club and you look around the pictures on the wall of all the music that's been made there in in the last 75 years or you go somewhere like the fleece in bristol or um just just these places they've there's there's some essence of that third spirit that's still existing in those walls, even when mm-hmm. even when
0: they're dark. And for, you know, those of us uh, like us, I suppose, that, 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 that really believe in that. That's why it's so much more upsetting when venues that have stood for a long time get knocked down or converted into something else, you know, it, because it, it's accumulative, isn't it? With every artist, every band, every performer that comes into those spaces, that spirit is a little bit bigger when they've left.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the one thing we have learned to do is is not to rely on the fact that everybody else might feel that spirit. A lot of the work the Music Venue Trust does is trying to explain not just that feeling that emotion that connectivity but also to roll that out into you know what's the economic impact how many jobs are there what's yeah. the importance of these these venues on so many different levels but ultimately in the end i don't think there's anybody in the organisation that's that's doing this because we want we want to explain the macroeconomic impact of creating a Dell <laughs> in in a room. No, I but, but we but we will do that if it if it means that we get to protect that spirit. And, and that, we're that's
1: really it. lucky that actually well, um, we've got the skills to do it in the team, which yeah. is awesome.
0: Yeah, well, I must say it's nice to talk to you both, uh, um, just on that very energetic, uh, almost spiritual level about the work that you do and and some of the work that i've done it's quite a lot of um those of us that were doing performing in the 90s and in bands that have ended up being on the side of trying to protect the uh the culture yes
2: it's very true i think i think and i think that probably sort of plays into the same work that we do you know that that actual passion that you have doesn't go away you know, it no. it's, it stays with you and, and you start thinking about how to protect it, how to preserve it, how to feel that way again, frankly, you know, how to make sure you can carry on having those experiences. And so, yeah, we've seen a lot mm. of a lot of people like that. Fergal Sharkey, of course, was one of the instigators of the UK music, um, you know, so that 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 kind of transition between being a performer and then going into the more strategic back end work has been going on for quite a few years
1: but i yeah. think it's it's more than the music industry as well though, because I do quite often point out when people are when some people are being slightly sniffy about grassroots music venues that actually an awful lot of professionals across the arts got their first taste of what they do in a local grassroots music venue. You know, in most Mm. towns and cities across the UK, there's an art centre, there's a grassroots venue. There may be a theatre, but a lot of them don't necessarily have a theatre. But, you know, the first sort of voluntary experiences or the first mucking in experiences are often in quite informal settings. And they can set people on a path to be something terribly sort of respectable later in life. (laughs) And then some people are quite shocked when they work out that, you know, the first thing that they did was... Do the door at the grimy grassroots music venue, and then you know promote a local band night and what have you and we we get to hear those stories that i'm I'm sure a lot of other people maybe are not so aware of,
0: yeah um it's interesting seeing um I don't know at my age I've, i felt like i don't know in the early nineties, I couldn't have um, imagined the culture becoming what it is now, that so much of it is online and all that kind of thing. But I I guess, you know, that was inevitable. Do you, do you, in the work that you do, which is very much to do with, you know, live and (laughs) real world activity, um, does it, does it strike you as that there's a part of the future and a part of uh, natural evolution that is, um, you know, it's fighting against, um, the things that we're talking about that we that we cherish.
2: I don't know, I think there's always a period of experimentation with anything new that comes along. And I think we we're tending to forget how new a lot of this stuff is. I mean, you know, everybody's now super especially in where we are now with the coronavirus, everybody's super reliant on on Facebook. Everybody's on Twitter almost all the all day. Instagram is obviously huge. But these things didn't even exist, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. And so we're still really in the in the stage of, of like working out what they are and what do they do. And we've mm. seen obviously in a lot of talk recently about how damaging, you know, social media might be for your mental health. But now we're now seeing the other side of that. It's probably helping a lot of people with their mental health. So we kind of, I don't know, I think honestly we still feel like we're in the learning stage of, how do humans interact with this digital culture and yeah. and what I would say is my own my own feeling on it is is that i'm I personally still feel like I'm working out what parts of me exist in the real world and what parts exist in the virtual world <laughs> and mm. and those those are probably two different identities but i i still'm drawn back to that central thing at some point I'm going to want to go and stand next to somebody I know right in front of the band jump up and down and experience what they're doing directly live in front of me and I don't think that's ever going to change. And I I if I'm honest about it, I don't think it's changing for anybody that's younger than me. My my daughters both love that experience. They they're yeah. very much digital. They're online a lot. They've got their personalities online, but they both want to go and see the gig. They both want to stand in front of the band. They want to go and meet their friends, and, and
1: Alex wants to crowd surf. Oh, good. Yeah.
2: They, want to, they want to crowd surf. Yeah. They want to. They want yeah. to have the whole experience, and they're not. Uh, people tend to think, "Oh, well, it's because you're in the music industry anyway, and we've brought them up weirdly." Well, we have brought we them have. up weirdly, but yeah. but you know, they, <laughs> but they, weird that's, and wonderfully. That's, Weird and wonderfully, but they—they they, you know—they're not unusual. That's not an unusual thing yeah. for young people to tell you. It's not—it's not strange to want to go and see the band. It's—it's it's a perfectly normal part and remains a really central part of what we are as a country.
1: But I think also yeah. there's there's a question of tools, and Music Venue Trust absolutely would not exist without the internet and our ability to. Mm wield this community of 680 venues some of whom you know we've never met face to face we do a national networking Mm -hmm. event once a year and we we try and do regional meetings every other year but sadly the ones this year are certainly not going to happen in person We, we are looking at online ways of doing them if possible but the very fact we don't even live in the UK as well and yet we can successfully run this organisation is thanks to the technology, thanks to the internet and email and social media yeah. and, you know, all of the rest of it. So I'm incredibly pleased that we have the means to do things, although, yeah. yes, as we've already discussed, you know, for us, real, real powerful art for me personally is about being in the room um, and, yeah. So I I feel that we're that's in a bit the of a thing. hybrid position at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good way to describe it and, and the word tool is very important, I think. And it is the I think where it's good it's our tool and um where it's not so good it's when we're its tool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I completely agree with that. <laughs> and and I guess you know, uh, it is young. It is very young and um Yes, yeah. I, I think that's the most
2: important thing that people sometimes forget, you know, that I, I saw somebody was going on and on at me the other day about what when will we be on Twitch? And I, I was just like, <laughs> well, first of all, I'll have to find out what that is. I mean, I'm probably behind yeah. the curve, you know, but but you're just like, okay, things come along and then people assume they've been part of their life for a huge amount of time. But yeah.
0: you know, th- these things are all relatively new. I always find it interesting in in the kind of, the digital era um what becomes the thing that's cool so you know when we were very young which band was cool you know were you into Duran Duran or Spandau Ballet were you into the Kinks or were you into the Stones you know and and that changed into genre you know people you say what music are you into they don't even say artist names a lot of the time they just kind of go now like some of my EDM some of my uh, some uh, neoclassical, some, you know, genres then become the thing. And now it's apps, isn't it? I mean, I, I can't keep up either. Um, uh, I keep getting told about new apps all the time. It's like, oh my God. It um, doesn't mean so much to me, but I guess that's kind of cool. Um, um, I think. Be- I- I would
1: say for me, Tim, that one of the absolute pleasures of being a mother of adults is I can just say, "Oh no, that my kids do that now."
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like my get out of
1: jail free card. You know, some things like I don't, I'm not on Twitter, I don't tweet. The girls do, yeah, and I'm just like, you know, and and I don't crowd surf, but my daughters do, so I can just defer some things to to the fact that you know i'm their mother and they can answer those questions which may maybe's a bit naughty but i do quite enjoy it i have to say i'd like to say at this point that
2: <laughs> i like to say at this point that i still crowd surf and so, tweet. <laughs> so he's i know just you a big did yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a regular uh, basis <laughs> um,
0: just getting back to um your work the charity music venue trust um What's what's happening at the moment then? I know that things have accelerated because you're on lockdown and uh, you, you never have a bored moment at Music Venue Trust. Uh, it, it's full on. What are you full on with at the moment?
2: Well, we're facing a very serious situation really for all the grassroots music venues in the UK at the moment. Um, we've just completed a big piece of surveying work, which we're doing in association with government departments, uh, with the Mayor of London. And that survey showed that 556 of the 670 members of the Music venues Alliance are facing an imminent threat of permanent closure. Um, we only have 114 in the UK that are currently in any kind of secure position. So we've launched a big um, national campaign to try and save those. Um, which people can find out about on our website, musicvenuetrust.com. We're asking the music industry to play a role in that. There's a huge role to be played by our major stars and by our biggest labels and streaming services. We really do need a national effort to prevent these closures. Um, And what we're doing as Music Venue Trust is um, for a couple of years now, we've run something called the Emergency Response Service. And that service fights individual venue closures as they come along. So last year... There were 96 different threats to music venues. The Emergency Response Service fought each of those one by one. And what we've realised is the scale of this problem is so large that that's what we have to do this time. We have to fight each individual threat and closure one by one on an individual basis. and, And we have to prevent that closure and we have to get that venue back open again and then try and deal with the problems that this might have caused, you know, whether they're an opening in debt
0: what you're saying in essence is that music venues were under threat anyway uh and and it's a hard business model to sustain it's hard to get the correct kind of support from um you know council local councils national government um and now with coronavirus we're into a, a an unknown period of time where the threat becomes deeper. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a massive escalation of the threat they faced. Funnily enough, I was thinking the earlier that it, it replicates what we've seen before. It's always external threats that come after these places. The venue, I, I don't, in all the time we've been doing this, I don't. maybe Bev will disagree, but I, I don't think we've seen a single venue closed down because people didn't want it or musicians didn't want to play mm.
0: there or there weren't audiences. Is it because somebody else wanted to put something else there?
2: Yeah, put something else there or, or yeah. you know, now we've got this new threat. It's always external things and it's always those that we're trying to manage on behind for music venues but I, I don't want to be too negative about this I, I honestly believe that if, if the music industry and, and the and the audiences and the fans and the musicians want to save these spaces they can be saved you know it's not mm-hmm. impossible for us to do this it's a lot of work a Music Venue Trust is looking for a lot of support from people to make that happen but I genuinely think one by one, we can make each one of these spaces open when this is over and then we can deal yeah. with any long-term damage they've had from that period of being closed. But the main thing is we've got to get them back open. We've got to get bands back in there. We've got to get audiences back in there.
0: Hey, t- talking about um, uh, just, you know, um, music venues and what they mean um, in our local village, town, cities, Um, our our friend, uh, our Canadian friend Shane Shapiro um, often uh, has talked about the business model not being sort of needed, needing to be updated, you know, the idea that that government or council often see just music venues as this kind of basic waste of money um, and that there needs to be a new uh, a, a, a sort of a new way to view what a music venue does in terms of how it affects the economy. It how, how I mean this is like me picking up from when Bev we were in Sheffield at um, a, a festival 4 years ago. Ooh, um, it was years how ago, does it, yeah. was it 5 years ago yeah. How does that does that feel like it, you you you're getting closer to I know it's a huge task uh, to undertake but uh, in, in trying to reimagine the business model for music venues does that feel like something you're you're getting closer to
1: a progress has definitely been made i'd say one of the biggest challenges remains that for some reason a lot of people will view a grassroots music venue as being somewhere that sells alcohol that also has music And Mm -hmm. our argument has always been that every single theatre, art centre and other cultural space in the UK has a bar too, and yet you don't define them as a bar with some culture on the side. And for me, Mm -hmm. it's one of the greatest frustrations that we haven't made more headway in that particular aspect because... Yes, I I think they really are still, even though a lot of our members actually are changing their legal structure and are becoming community interest companies or community shares or cooperatives, they're still treated as if they're profit-making bars that have a bit of music. And we cannot seem to sort of shift that sort of idea with a lot of people, even though they genuinely are not profit making well very few of them are profit making companies you know by their very scale they can't be it's very hard to make money out of live music if you're running a venue under 400 capacity because it just doesn't stack up so uh, there's an awful lot of work still to be done but there's definitely a better conversation about it now and as as you say also diverse people talking about it people coming at it from different different um backgrounds or different angles i mean people like shane who obviously dr shane shapiro talking about it as a kind of you know academic ethos and bringing in different things doing a lot of talking with planners about their responsibility and the role Mm. of music in a city everything like that sort of helps build the patchwork of the elements that could change things over time and so there's always room for optimism in these things
0: yes and that's the thing that's the key isn't it is the optimism because uh, it can look pretty um i don't know hopeless sometimes when you're up against all these big legislations and councillors or people in government but there but there are people that care as well in those sort of uh, that sector isn't there
1: well i think it also comes back that comes back to the very core of this it's it's about connection and um funnily enough mark was saying the sort of you know pre- coronavirus and, and I actually did an interview for a podcast the week before all of this kicked off in which I sort of said that I had to feel optimistic about the future of the grassroots music venue sector because it was peopled with some of the best people. And, you know, if you knew those people, you knew their creativity, you knew their energy, you'd have to be optimistic. And then when it came out and it was shared, I had to sort of, you know, share it on with a caveat that please remember I recorded this before COVID-19. Uh, but it still it still stands. You know, it, it, you know, a lot of these people, Tim, you know, we know these people and we feel privileged to know them if you know the the heart and the passion and the determination of creative people, then you have to be optimistic that that what 's important to them can be communicated to other people
0: yes yes it 's so true um, Mark, would you like to say um, anything in particular uh, to listeners uh, a, a, about music venues you've spoken you know beautifully like like you both have. Um, for the argument for just having that little extra time in our life to think about our local music venue
2: well I think that's the thing I'd probably leave this on which is that there's going to come a point where this is over and we're as an organisation determined that your local music venue will still be there for you to go to and maybe some of the people listening to this programme maybe they they could look at the screen (laughs) or they could look at their radio right now and they could think about the fact that currently where they are in in terms of only being able to access digital connectivity. And I'd like them to think that when this is over, I'd like them all to go to their local music venue and celebrate the fact that we've got back what we've lost.
0: Well, I feel exactly the same. And um, I, I hope I get to see both of you, whether it's in the UK or Spain, in a music venue very soon when all of this is over. Um, Mark, David and Bev Witcher from Music Venue just thank you so much for coming and being super connected (laughs) Thank you Tim It's great to talk to you And you Tim